0: morning guys uh once again <clears throat> i still have my little cold so if i'm coughing it's not covid it's just just the cold um a couple of announcements real quick um first of all next sunday we kind of waited till this sunday to announce it because i wanted to check the weather uh, make sure it wasn't going to be raining but next sunday um we're gonna just have one service, and it's gonna be outside at 10 o'clock in the parking lot. So, uh, encourage you guys to make it for that. Um, it's gonna be a good time. We did it a little over a month ago, and um, it was a lot of fun. So, encourage you guys for that. And then, and we'll also we'll have a couple tents. And um, so, if if you're very fair skinned and you need to stay out of the sun, there'll be a spot for you to sit. Um, Caleb looks excited about that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that'll be happening, and then also, guys, if if you've been wondering what you can do to serve in ministry, and and you have a love for kids, and there's a big need over there in children's ministry, so we could really use some some Sunday school teachers and some some Sunday school teachers' assistants. So, um, if that's something you're interested in, maybe you feel called to do that. Catch Jen afterwards and she will, um, she'll give you the details and give you the application and kind of let you know what the process is to get involved with that. And lastly, we will be meeting again this Wednesday at 7 o'clock, between 7 and 8 for a time of worship and prayer. Um, encourage you to to come out for that. It'll be the last of our three 21 days of prayer Wednesday night meetings. So I encourage you to try to make it out for that. It's going to be a good time. Other than that, I think let's. Let's get into the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we just we just ask for your presence this morning, Lord. We just recognize that, that we need you. That without you, we are we're lost, Lord. As we're gonna see in the text this morning, that in our flesh there dwells no good thing, Lord. Without you, we just we don't have a hope. And so we pray that you would just just meet us here this morning, that you would fill us, that you would empower us, Lord, and that you would embolden us for the ministry that you have called us to. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Acts chapter 6 again. About, About 20 years ago, a friend of mine gave me this little booklet that was written in the 60s. It was written by, it's not a Christian booklet or anything. It was written by this guy named Charles Hummel. And this little booklet, it was called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And this book, The Tyranny of the Urgent, it kind of became a business classic. And what this little book talks about is how in life, there are things that are, that are sort of of primary importance. They're the things that we need to focus on in life. There are important tasks and jobs for us to accomplish. But there are also lots of stuff that, that urgently needs to get done. There are lots of fires that need to get put out. And sometimes the demands of life, the urgency of life drowns out the things that are truly important in life. And the whole premise of the book is that if we're not careful, we'll get so sucked into doing the things that urgently need to get done that we never get around to accomplishing our our, our true calling. And, And that's the tyranny of the urgent. Getting sucked into taking care of the details and losing sight of what really matters. And I think this principle is true in in every aspect of life, but nowhere is it truer than in our Christian life. We started talking about this a little bit last week in Acts chapter 6 when we looked at verses 1 through 7. But as I was going over my notes and getting ready for this week, I realized that I I don't think that I really did this principle justice. So I want to spend a little bit more time on it this morning before we finish off Acts chapter 6. Remember back in verse 2, the apostle said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Remember, they weren't saying that that particular job wasn't important. They were simply stating that that wasn't their calling. The apostles, Peter and John, realized that if they spent all their time focusing on these urgent matters, they would lose sight of their true calling, of their primary calling. And and here's here's where I'm going with this. Here's the point that I want to make. There are things that are are critical in our Christian life, aren't there? There are things that, that are critical to our to our development as believers. Spending time in word, the word, spending time in prayer, spending time worshiping the Lord, spending time fellowshipping with the saints. Really, that the culmination of those things that we looked at in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Right? Those things are, are absolutely essential for our faith. And we've been hearing that word essential a lot lately, haven't we? Essential services essential businesses what does that word mean essential basically it means something that you can't survive without right something that's indispensable spending time in the word is indispensable to our faith spending time in prayer is an absolute necessity in our walk with jesus Spending time in worship. Spending time with the fellowship. Those are indispensable things. Nothing in life is more important than those things. And I think as believers, we have such good intentions. Every January 1st, you get a new copy of the one-year Bible. I'm I'm not going to miss a day this year. I'm going to finish this sucker. Right? I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to go on a mission trip. I'm going to fill in the blank. Every year we get like that. But then what happens? We Stay up too late, so we get up late. The kids get up late. We have to get them ready for school. You've got that project that you have to finish. You know, I'm going to read the Bible this morning. I just need to finish up these emails first. I'm going to spend some time in prayer this morning, but first I need to dot, 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 right? Whatever it is. And, and I don't think this is only me, right? I don't think I'm the only one who struggles under the oppression of the tyranny of the urgent. I think many of us do. How do we, how do we overthrow that tyrannical oppression? Well, there's a magic solution. There's an easy fix. All you have to do is, oh, there's not an easy fix. If there was an easy fix, it wouldn't be an issue for so many of us, would it? This is something that's difficult, and it takes effort. And I think it starts with reexamining, reordering and prioritizing our life. And disciplining ourselves, and that's a hard thing, you know. Frankly, if it was an easy thing, we'd all already be doing it, right? And so I think that that we need to to examine our prioritize prior, prior, prioritize our lives, and then we just need to do it. We need to ask the Lord for strength and motivation and discipline and then just get after it but there is a spiritual element as well right a lot of times you know we 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 resolve that we're going to get up every morning and exercise and then we don't and that's just a lack of discipline really right that's that's just laziness right that's just lack of focus but when we're talking about not praying and not reading your Bible, I think part of it is lack of discipline and lack of focus, but we need to remember that we also have an enemy as the people of God, don't we? Peter tells us, 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober, be vigilant, therefore, because the devil is like a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. So we have an enemy, and our enemy has a vested interest in stopping us From doing these things. See the enemy. He knows where our strength comes from. He knows that as believers. Our strength comes from time in the word. Our strength comes from time in prayer. Our strength comes from worshiping the Lord. Our strength comes from fellowshipping with the saints. And he knows that if he can stop those things from taking place. Our spiritual development, our spiritual effectiveness will be hindered. I'm reminded of that story in 2 Kings chapter 6. Remember Elisha, he's there in, in Dothan. And the king of Aram, he sends his armies to, to basically, he wants to snuff out Elisha at this point. And Elisha has a servant with him and he's scared. He says, look Elisha, we're, we're doomed. We're We're boxed in, we're surrounded, we're finished. And in verse 16, Elisha says this. He says, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So I want you to see in that story is this. When Elisha's servant's eyes were opened, he saw that there was a a spiritual realm that he couldn't see. He saw that there was a spiritual battle going on that he wasn't previously aware of. And I think that the same is true for us. There are forces at work that don't want us praying, that don't want us worshiping, that don't want us reading the Word of God. There are forces at work purposely trying to distract us. And I'm not saying that that there's a little red-suited demon with a pitchfork poking you, trying to distract you but I'm not saying that there's not either. There may well be, right? So here's what we need to do. We need to to pray. We need to ask the Lord for consistency and discipline and focus. And we also need to stop being lazy and to do our part. To, To set your alarm in the morning and then get up. And to be clear, I'm not just up here yelling at you. I'm talking about this because this is something that the Lord has really convicted me of. That we need to decide, that I need to decide what's important to me. What's my highest priority? And then to do it. And let me say this before I hop off my soapbox here. A lot of people pre-COVID, you know, I, I've heard this so many times, right? I would like to spend time in the Lord with the Lord. I'd like to spend time in the Word. I'd like to spend time in prayer, but I just, I'm just too busy. I just don't have time. Number one, that's nonsense. Everybody can make time. And, and it's so crucial. We we are eternal. And we're gonna spend time with eternity with the Lord. And the only things that're going to last in eternity are the things that we do for the kingdom. Your work emails aren't going to echo in eternity. Your extra few hours at work finishing up that project, those aren't going to last into eternity. Time in the word, time in prayer, those things last into eternity. Those things pay eternal dividends. So many people say, I just don't have the time. But now those same people are sitting around in their pajamas all day watching reruns of the divorce court. And they're still not reading their Bible. And still not praying. Here's the point, guys. We make time for what's important to us. We make time for the things that we really care about. And this idea, this concept of the tyranny of the urgent, it's, it's true, I think, so much in our relationship to the Lord. In, in whatever calling that He has given us, whatever our personal ministry is, and, and let me be clear, each one of us, if you're a Christian, if you're born again, if you're a child of God, you are called to ministry without question. He has called you in to service to the kingdom. And that doesn't mean it's a a full-time vocational ministry. It doesn't mean that you're going to be a pastor or a missionary or whatever. And it doesn't mean that it's not. But no matter what, you are called to serve the Lord. And your ministry might be evangelism. It might just be telling people about Jesus. Your ministry might be inviting people to church. Your ministry might be praying for people. Your ministry might be behind the scenes helping out with stuff. Whatever it is. And, by the way, we need to figure that out. You need to stop and figure out what is the primary calling that the Lord has on your life right now. You need to take time and discern that. And and it changes sometimes. What your calling was five years ago might not be what it is now. And what he has you doing now might not be what it is in five more years. But you need to figure out what it is that the Lord is calling you to right now and get busy doing that. And then you need to be careful and not let all of the distractions of life pull you off course. You need to be like the apostles here in verse 2. They they, they said, look, it isn't right that we get distracted from our primary calling, even if it's for a good thing, even if it's for a worthwhile cause. If it's not what the Lord is calling us to do, then that shouldn't be where our energies are focused. We need to be careful that we don't get distracted by the tyranny of the urgent. And I, um, my mind works weird ways, and, um, I have a very eclectic taste in music. And as I was thinking through this, um, that Diana Ross song popped into my mind. Remember that song, Keep Me Hanging On, you know, the chorus is set me free, why don't you, babe? I was kind of thinking, I know all you older people, you're going to be humming that all service now, and Lisa's already doing it over there. I can see it already. <laughs> right, you know, urgency, that great tyrant, won't just set you free. It won't let you go easily. We have to rebel against it. We have to throw off the shackles of that oppressor every day. Every single day it's a struggle. We have to to wrest back our freedom from the busyness of the world. Well, I guess now we're to our passage today. Let's let's look at starting in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. that this Jesus of Nazareth destroy this place delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. So we were introduced to Stephen last week. Stephen, remember, was one of those Hellenistic Jews, one of those culturally Greek Jews who was selected to to oversee that program that took care of the feeding of the widows. And so the rest of this chapter and most of chapter 7 are dedicated to this man, Stephen. It says, Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. We can assume, I think, we can infer that since Stephen was selected, he met the requirements that the apostles listed in the, earlier in the chapter, right? We can assume, I think, that he was a man of, of good reputation. That he was filled with wisdom. That he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And it seems as we begin to look at his life that, that the Lord, he took those characteristics and he, he, he supercharged them, right? He, he, he added to them. And it says that he filled Stephen with grace and power. And I think it's worth noting here that the power of God followed the grace of God. And that being used by God followed being faithful and being of good character and being wise and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Those are requirements of being used by God. And so Peter, I mean, Stephen having filled those requirements, he begins to be used. The Lord uses him to work great signs and wonders among the people. And we don't have a list of the signs and wonders, but I'm guessing and speculating that they are probably the same signs and wonders that the apostles performed, right? healing people, raising the dead, all casting out demons, these miracles. And it makes sense that that he was doing the same things that the apostles were. And here's why I point that out. Stephen wasn't an apostle, was he? He was sort of, for lack of a better term, a second generation Christian, right? He wasn't one of the original ones that walked with the Lord. And here's why I point that out. There are those who teach that only the apostles had the authority to perform these miracles and these sign gifts. And once the apostles died, right? Those those gifts ceased. And that the gifts of the Spirit are no longer active and alive in the church today. Those were only for the apostles during that apostolic period. Except Stephen wasn't an apostle. And he performed miracles as well. And I think that's just one more brick in the argument for the the perpetuity of the gifts and against cessationism, that the gifts of the Spirit are no longer valid. And just so you guys know, We as a church absolutely believe that the gifts of the Spirit are active and alive in the church today. Verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Sicilian Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So we mentioned previously that at this point, the church was generally well regarded by the public, right? For the most part, the the people, they, they looked at the church favorably. They liked the church. And primarily at this point, the opposition to the church was from the Jewish leadership. And here we find, it says, some men who belong to the synagogue of the freedmen. Now, a synagogue, and it's kind of the easiest way to understand it, the synagogue is basically church for the Jews, right? It was a place where the, where the Jews gathered and studied the Torah. They, they gathered together in fellowship and studied the Old Testament. Now, at this time in history, in the Roman Empire, almost half of the population were slaves, But it wasn't uncommon for slaves to, for whatever reason, to to earn their freedom and to be set free. And and we know that there were many Jewish slaves in the Roman world, both Hebrew Jews and Hellenistic Jews. And oftentimes when they were set free, they would return home. And so we find that there is a, a synagogue that's largely comprised of these freedmen. And it also notes that there were men from from Cyrene and from Alexandria and Asia and Sicilia. And and I want to note this, that this, this, this region here called Sicilia, one of the most notable cities in Sicilia was a city called Tarsus. And I think that Luke points that out because in the next chapter, were introduced to a, a radical young Pharisee from the city of Tarsus. And I don't know for sure, but I think that here Luke is noting this fact because he's, he's setting the stage for the entrance of, of the Apostle Paul, right? Of Saul of Tarsus. And it says that they rose up and began disputing with Stephen. They were were debating here. They're they're arguing theology. And I want to note here that they weren't arguing with him. They weren't opposing him for the healings or for the miracles, right? Nobody's opposed to people being healed. They were opposed to him doing these things in the name of Jesus Christ. But verse 10 says, they could not withstand the wisdom of the spirit with which he was speaking. I hate losing arguments. I hate being wrong. I mean, I don't know. I, I imagine I would hate being wrong. If it happens, I'll, I'll tell you guys. Right? We all hate that, right? And there's nothing worse than, than getting beat in an argument. And that's what's going on here. They're debating Stephen. And and these were smart guys. These are leaders of the synagogue. Likely the Apostle Paul. He wasn't the Apostle Paul then. But likely Saul of Tarsus. And it says that they couldn't withstand the wisdom of the Lord or the spirit of the Lord. So Stephen, he's here arguing that Jesus is that Mashiach. He's the the Jewish Messiah Messiah from Scripture that they've been waiting for. And I imagine he's working through all the prophecies, starting in, you know, Genesis 3, down through the Psalms and Isaiah and Zechariah, hitting on all these points and how Jesus fulfilled this, all these prophecies. And in every argument these guys are making, Stephen is defeating them, proving through Scripture that Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for. And it says that they couldn't contend with him. First, let me suggest that you never allow yourself to get in the position where you're arguing against the Holy Spirit or that you're arguing against the wisdom of God because you won't win. You just won't. You're going to lose that argument every time. They're arguing against the Lord and they're losing and they're growing more and more frustrated. And... If you can't win fairly, what do you do? You deflate the footballs, right? You cheat. You, that's what they did. Verse 11, when they secretly, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So look what they did here. Four things that I note. First, they get the people to lie, don't they? We heard him blaspheme God and Moses. No, they didn't. They never heard him do that because he never did that. This is a, it's a fabrication. It never happened. Second, it says they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And as I think about this, It's so reminiscent of what happened to Jesus, isn't it? False charges and and fake narratives. Getting people all worked up. And the third thing they do in verse 12, they go out and they lay hold of Stephen. They seize him, they arrest him, and they bring him before the Sanhedrin, and they begin to interrogate him and question him. And then we see in verse 13, they, they set up false witnesses. They get people to perjure themselves. They, they, they get people to manufacture stories about Stephen. This man, they say, never never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and against the law. They said, we have heard him say that, that Jesus is going to destroy the temple, and he's going to change our customs. Jesus never said that, did he? Of course, he did talk about the temple being destroyed. Remember John chapter 2, in verse 18. The, 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 the scribes and the Pharisees, they're gathered around Jesus contending with them. And they're asking him, by what authority are you performing these miracles? By what authority are you teaching? And Jesus answered them, verse 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And Jesus is is speaking of himself, of course. He's saying, look, you guys are going to destroy this temple, my body, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. Much later, a few years later, in Mark chapter 14, verse 56, Jesus is on trial. And it says, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We have heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build a nether not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So we see here that this trial that Stephen's going through, it's very reminiscent of the trial that Jesus went through, isn't it? And we're going to see in chapter 7 that the, the net result was very similar too. Not not the cross, but Stephen, we're gonna see he he died for his faith. And we see the people who oppose the gospel will stop at nothing to, to squelch it out and to stop it from going forward. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face, saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Some translations say that his face became as bright as an angel's. Now, I, I don't know what's going on here. Did Stephen just slowly start to glow and emanate light? Well, You know, it was just more and more intently and he began to shine. Uh, we don't know what happened, but clearly something supernatural is taking place here. Something significant enough that it caught everyone's attention in, in the midst of this big commotion. Right? He'd been arrested, he's being interrogated before this group of 70, plus everyone else who's there. And suddenly he begins to radiate God's glory that might not mean a lot to us. In the world that we live in, with all the, the CGI effects we see on TV, that might not seem that significant. It happened to Pepper Potts in Iron Man 3, right? It's but that symbolism would have been extremely significant to the Jewish people. The only other time we see this in the Old Testament is when Moses goes up on the Mount Sinai and he dwells there in the presence of God. And remember Exodus chapter 34, he comes back down and he's glowing. And, and in those days, you would have had a very hard time finding a Jew who wouldn't have immediately understood the symbolism And the significance of what's happening here when Stephen begins to glow. But the leaders here, they're so filled with hate and jealousy and bitterness that they're blinded to these great things that the Lord is doing. In the first verse of chapter 7, the high priest asked Stephen, Are are these things true? Are are these accusations against you true? Are you really speaking against the temple and against Moses and against the law? And here's the problem. Never give a preacher a a chance to to speak publicly unless you're ready for a sermon. And that's what happens in chapter 7. Peter starts to lay out this sermon. And we're not going to get there today. But I want to just look at a couple of lessons here as we close out chapter 6. Stephen was filled with the Spirit of God, and he was filled with grace. And he was opposed by the world. I was thinking about that, and I was reminded that, that the world is at war with God. Remember what, what Paul would later write in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. He says, For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The thing I want to zero in on in that verse is that we were God's enemies. We were at war with God, we were opposed to God. Paul would would write in a couple chapters, in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, he says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Some of your translations say that that we were at enmity with God, that we were in open conflict, that before we knew the Lord, we we were at war with God. And we need to understand that, that natural man is naturally hostile towards the things of God. And because of that, they're naturally hostile towards us, the people of God. And I think that as we share our faith, as we evangelize, as we pray for people, we need to to remember that and have compassion on people. That people who don't know the Lord, they're spiritually blind. And they can't see the truth until the Lord opens their eyes. The second thing that I want to look at here, Stephen was filled with grace and they opposed him. I think that people naturally rebel against the idea of salvation by grace alone. The idea that we have to fully And completely rely on God for our salvation. And there's nothing that we can do to contribute to our salvation. That there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. In our flesh. Mankind naturally rejects that. That that idea is is repulsive to us. The idea that, that within our flesh. There dwells no good thing. That's. That's repulsive to the world. And and I think that people would be fine with the doctrine of grace if there was a little bit of works too. Right? People would be fine with the doctrine of grace if we could play just a little role in our salvation. Right? People would be fine that we're saved by grace plus just a little bit of self-righteousness. Right? If we could be... Saved by grace and just a, just a smidgen of our own efforts. That would be a lot more palatable to most people. But the reality is we are saved by grace through faith. And a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The truth is that Jesus died, that he shed his blood to pay the cost for our sins because we never could. He died so that we could find life in him. And church, you need to understand that there is nothing that we can add to that. There's nothing that we can add to the blood. There's nothing that we can add to the cross. You are not saved by believing in Jesus plus. Jesus in the rules. Jesus in good works. Jesus in knocking on doors. Jesus in serving in Sunday school. Jesus in church attendance. It's none of those things. It's Christ alone that saves sinful man. You are saved because God is good and he loves you. And that's it. And nothing else. And I know that that I'm preaching to the choir here in church. But just in case if you've never made that decision to submit your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never been forgiven of your sins, call out on the Lord today. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to save you from your sins. Be born again. Amen. Heavenly Father, We're so grateful for your word, Lord, and just the the lessons that you teach us. And Father, we pray that you would help us just to to walk humbly before you, Lord, recognizing that that you alone save us, Father. And Father, we pray that you would just fill us with your spirit, like we're going to see next week in Stephen, and fill us with with courage and with boldness and with wisdom. And let us leave this place focused on the calling that you have given us, Lord. Not to be distracted by the cares of the world or the busyness of life, but to to set our eyes on you and to focus on you, Father. We ask that in your name, Jesus.